like to thank everyone that's participated in the service so far. I've been blessed. Um, lately, we've been talking about God's plan for sexuality. And we've been uh, doing a sermon series here. In the middle of the sermon series, as been mentioned already, it's called Finding Love. And because God wants everyone to find love, he has spelled out in the Bible a really clear plan to be able to do that. And there are right ways of finding love. There are wrong ways of finding love. Perhaps you've experienced some of those in your life. But the problem is, is that when God lays out this plan in the Bible, we can look at that and realize that there are desires in our life that go contrary to that plan. And what do we do when we have these really strong desires for love in a way that God does not does not give to us. It's, it's not a gift. It's something that we're taking for ourselves. How do we deal with these desires when they come up in our lives that go contrary to God's plan? I'd like to take a look at that today. And to get us into that topic, um, I, I'd like to share how God transformed the life of this lady here. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield, and she is an enthusiastic follower of Jesus today, but she hasn't always been that way. About 20 years ago, as she was um, working as an English professor at Syracuse University. At that time in her life, she was a staunch atheist. She was in a lesbian relationship, monogamous lesbian relationship, and she advised the LGBT or lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, it's just uh, usually just referred to with those um, four letters, LGBT student group on campus. Like many people in the LGBT community, Rosaria Butterfield, she thought that Christians hated people like her. And after writing an article against a particular organization, a uh, Christian organization, she had this article against Christianity, this Christian uh, group, she received the expected letters. Some letters were praising her. Oh, yeah, great, you gave it to them. Other letters uh, hated it. And, and they expressed that really clearly to her. But there was one letter that she received that stood out. It was a letter from a local pastor. And although this local pastor did not agree with her commentary on Christianity, he disagreed in such a kind way that it stood out to her. He asked insightful questions. And the whole letter was, was so different from the other letters that she had received. It had this warm, caring tone to it. Now, because she was doing research on Christians, she decided to respond to this pastor's letter. And he ended up inviting her to, her home, to his home with him and his wife. He invited uh, Rosaria over for dinner one evening. Now, she had certain expectations as she went to this dinner. Okay, here's this pastor. He knows that I am in the LGBT community. I'm, I'm an outspoken atheist and a lesbian. And He's inviting me to his. She had certain expectations. She thought that the pastor was going to, you know, make some nice, uh, nice maybe pleasantries at the beginning. But before the evening is, was over, she expect, expected the pastor to try and convert her to Christianity. After, so she shows up to, to dinner, and after the pastor said a, said a simple prayer over the meal, the pastor and his wife spent the rest of the evening asking Rosaria questions about herself, getting to know her, 
becoming friends with her, seeking to understand who she, the, the person she is, wanting to understand her better. And she was very surprised by this. That was it. In the months and weeks following this visit, the pastor and his wife stayed in touch with Rosaria. They would reach out to her uh, from time to time with a loaf of bread or maybe some uh, comment about a shared interest that they had. And each time they, they reached out to her, they demonstrated that they were more interested in her than they were in trying to get her to believe the way they believed. She noticed that. During this time where she was doing this research on Christianity, she began to to read large portions of the Bible. She was like, hey, if I'm going to find a way to undermine the Christian faith, I need to get to know the Bible. So she began to to read the Bible and study the Bible, looking for ways to undermine uh, the Christian faith and to tear it apart. But over time, she began to consider, as she's reading the Bible and as she's growing in in her friendship with this pastor and his wife, um, she began to consider if the Bible and God's plan for sexuality, specifically, was really true. One day, she, when she finally mustered the courage to go to church, she went to this pastor's church, she discovered that when she went to this church, that these people didn't hate her or people like her, but they showed a genuine interest in her. They, they, were, they cared about her. They were concerned about her. Um, and as her, her friendships with people in church began to develop, she continued to read the Bible, and, and she finally came to the place where she accepted Christ as her Lord and as her Savior. She accepted the Bible as truth. Incredible, incredible thing. When this happened, she knew that changes in her life, that this acceptance of Christ, these changes that would, that would be required to follow Jesus, they would be painful. No longer would she be in a romantic relationship with her partner that she dearly loved, this wonderful woman that, that she loved and admired and adored. No longer would she be in a romantic relationship. There was, she felt the pain of that, and, and rightly so. That'd be a painful thing. She realized that no longer would the social support incredible hospitality and social support that she enjoyed in the LGBT community, that that was going to drastically change. But as she considered these painful experiences, she found that the church cared. They cared about the pain that this change would bring about in her life. They were empathetic towards that. They didn't look down on her LGBT friends and say, yeah, leave those people. They're, they're wor- they, they, cons- they were concerned about it. They asked, how can we help? And how can we get to know your friends? That was actually the questions that were asked to her. At her conversion, Rosaria's lesbian identity and same-sex attractions did not go away. But as she came to know Christ more and more, a, a love for Christ began to grow in her heart that eclipsed everything else. And she was radically changed. Today, her life has completely changed. And this change was no doubt facilitated by a group of Christians who loved her. That's how it happened. They genuinely loved her. Sadly, many in the LGBT community have not found what Rosaria found in church. They have come to church, and they have felt misunderstood. They have felt rejected and worthless, and in many ways, rightly so. 
They, they have been treated badly in church. Well-meaning people, well-meaning church leaders, more concerned about condemning sexual orientation than leading them to Jesus, have led them to feel that they were rejected and they were condemned. So if you or if someone you know, someone you care about, is in the LGBT community, and you have not experienced the love of Christ, or they have not experienced the love of Christ in church, as a pastor, as a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, I want to say, I'm sorry, and that we apologize, and that is wrong, because Christ loves people, and Christ does not change people by condemning them. In fact, he says that. I did not come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world to save the world. That was his purpose. Now, saving the world does not happen by compromising on truth. It happens by showing love. That's how it happens. The title of the message this morning is Compelled by Love. And before we open the Bible and read it and, and uh, seek to know what, God's, uh, what God is saying to us, I invite you to just pause with me for prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we humbly submit to you as our creator, and as our God. We submit to you as our Savior, our King. And we ask that you would speak to us words of life. We ask that we would receive it, and that it would empower us to experience your love in a greater way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15. If you'd like to use the Pew Bible, it's page 1160. That's the one that's right in front of you. Um, but whatever Bible you choose is fine. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15. This was written by the Apostle Paul. And Paul had experienced a radical transformation in his life as well. He went from doing everything he could to destroy the Christian faith to doing everything he could to build up the Christian faith, to tell the other people about Jesus, to raise up churches, to help people experience Christ for themselves. And right after his conversion, when he accepted Christ, things got really bad right away. He had to run for his life from Damascus, and he had to run from his own countrymen, his fellow Jewish brothers, had, were plotting to take his life, so he had to leave Damascus at night. But this did not keep him from loving his fellow Jews and working for them to accept Jesus. It's very interesting that even though he experienced so much persecution from uh, Judaism, he writes later in, in his, his letter to the Romans, he writes in, 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 in chapter 9, in fact, he, he says that he wished that he could be cursed in other words, he wished that he could give up on eternal life so that his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters could be saved. He was willing to give up his, his eternal life for people that hated him. It's amazing. Not only did he long for the Jewish people to know Jesus, but he ministered rel relentlessly to people who were outside of Judaism. On his first missionary journey, he came to a place called Lystra, and there he healed a man in the name of Jesus. Incredible, incredible healing. He had the chance to proclaim Jesus to the people of Lystra, these, these people outside of Judaism who, who did not know the one true God. 
He, he presents Jesus to them. But a little while later, some, some Jewish people came and, and they stirred up the mob and they, they stirred up a mob and, and, and they turned the people against Paul. And this angry mob drugged Paul out of the city and they picked up stones and they, and they tried to kill him with stones, throwing stones at him. And bruised and bleeding, they left Paul there for dead. But miraculously, Paul got up and he kept on going in his missionary journey. He kept on preaching about Christ, and later he actually returned to Lystra to minister to the very people who were part of this city who tried to kill him. Later on, we we find Paul, and these are just a few snapshots that give evidence of the radical transformation in Paul's life. We find Paul in the city of Philippi, and there, again, there's a Roman colony, and he's, he's ministering to people outside of Judaism, and while ministering there, he's falsely accused of stirring up trouble. It wasn't stirring up trouble, but he was accused of that, and he was arrested, he was beaten without a trial, and he was thrown into prison in a real painful way. Yet in spite of this abuse, in spite of this mistreatment, Paul and Silas, who who he was traveling with, his co-worker, the Bible says that at midnight they were praying and they were singing praises to God. This amazing attitude of this man. Paul even cared for the jailer who treated him so harshly and was able to baptize this jailer and his family. How could Paul go against his natural desires for self-preservation, for comfort, for being treated well? How could he go against those natural desires and care for people who mistreated him, care for people who even wanted him dead? How is that possible? Well, he tells us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 14, Paul says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all. Jesus on the cross dies for every human being. Therefore, all died. Verse 15, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Notice that Paul's behavior, that this transformation that took place in Paul's life, notice that it did not take place because Paul tried really hard to be good. This was not self-taught, this change that took place in his life. It came from a source completely outside of himself. He says that he is compelled. In other words, he is urged on. The, the, the New King James, or the, the King James Version says he is constrained by the love of Christ. It was the love of Christ. It was this influence outside of himself that came in and changed everything about him so that he's no longer living for himself. Now he is living for Christ. Christ's love was unlike anything Paul had ever known before. Because Christ doesn't just love people who agree with him. He doesn't just love people who want to be friends with him, for people who want to know him. He also loves people who don't want to know him. He loves people who disagree with him. He loves people who hate him. Here's why. Christ just loves everyone. He just loves people, period. After accepting Christ, Paul could not be the same. Here's why. Because love changes us. That's how change takes place. A while ago, I was visiting, long while ago, I was visiting a family, another state, uh, visiting them in their home, and uh, they had a little toddler. This toddler had just began to learn to walk. 
And as we're visiting there in, in this room, they, they had hardwood floors and toddlers just starting to, to walk around a little bit, kind of using the, 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 saw, the wall, you know, and just a little, little wobbly, um, learning how to walk. And, and we're visiting here in this room, and off to the corner of this room, there's hardwood floors, and off to the corner of this room, there's a stairway that leads down, a wooden hardwood uh, on, the, on the stairs as well. And we're visiting, and we're having a nice time um, just, just getting to know each other, having a nice conversation. But while we are visiting there, the toddler is inching his way closer and closer to the edge of the stairs, these hardwood stairs, this flight of stairs going down. And I was oblivious to it, um, but the toddler's mother was not oblivious to it. And when she saw what her son, where her son was at and saw him getting close, just getting to the edge of where the, the, the stairs were, were going down and saw the danger, this mother was compelled to act. This mother who was very proper and dressed you know, very, very nicely, all of the sudden, I'm not kidding when I say this, all of the sudden she went airborne. She literally dove like a wide receiver reaching out to make a catch. She dove across the room, went in the air, and just in time took hold of that boy's arm and saved him from falling over the side down the stairs. It was amazing. In that moment, when she saw her son in danger, she was not thinking about being proper. She was not thinking about the conversation that was there. She was not thinking about her own comfort. In that moment, she was thinking about one thing. She was thinking about how to protect her son. So she wasn't even considering what might happen to her body if she were to dive across the room and land on the hardwood floor and take hold of her son to protect him from falling down the stairs. She wasn't thinking about any of those, of, of those things. She wasn't thinking about herself. Why? Love. I mean, love changes a mother's heart, and it certainly changed hers. She only was thinking about the well-being of her child. This is what love does. It changes our thinking. Paul says that the love of Christ compels us to think in a completely different way, no longer living for ourselves, but to live for him. That's a radical transformation, to no longer be living for ourselves. Now, to some people, the idea of no longer living for themselves might sound like a bad idea. I mean, what's wrong with living for ourselves? I mean, we have desires, we have things that we want, and, and doing what we want can be very appealing, right? I mean, when you do what you want to do, that usually we think, well, that's, that's a good recipe for, for happiness. That sounds like a good time. But doing what seems good to us, doing what, what our desires tell us to do, puts us in a very dangerous I think one of the best examples of this comes from Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. Think about what Eve knew in the Garden of Eden. Eve knew God's plan for his life because he told her. He made it very clear. He said that from any tree of the garden in the garden, Adam and Eve could freely eat. I mean, there was abundance there. There was all kinds of fruit, all kinds of beauty, all kinds of experiences to enjoy. It was, it was there in abundance. From any tree of the garden, you can eat. But there's one tree out of all of these trees. One tree, if you eat it, 
you will die, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve knew that this tree would destroy her. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, she vocalizes this truth as she approaches the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and has this conversation with the serpent. She says, no, God told us that, that we will die if we eat from this fruit. But something very interesting happened as she stood before that tree. She began to look at the fruit. Now, she had heard about it. God had told her, you eat the fruit, you're going to die. She'd heard that. She heard that the fruit was lethal. But when she comes to the tree and she begins to look at the fruit, she sees something that doesn't look lethal. She's, she's attracted by what she sees. I'd like for you to read with me. All right, I mean, you don't have to read it out loud, but follow along here. What Genesis 3, 6 describes what Eve saw. This is what her eyes informed her about this fruit. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was going to kill her? No. She saw that it was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eye, and it was also desirable for gaining wisdom. When Eve looked at the fruit, she began to desire it. It doesn't look like it's going to kill me. This looks like it's going to be good for me, that it's going to be, it's, it's going to be giving, it's going to give me wisdom. It's desirable. It's, it looks very pleasing. Up to this point, Eve had no doubts that the fruit was lethal. Her mind was clear. I mean, she had not sinned. She was living in the full capacity of humanity as God had created her to be. But even in her sinless state, the very thing that would destroy her and bring sin and death and pain and suffering to the human race, it appeared desirable. If that is what happened to Eve, when she looked and she trusted her desires, if that's what happened to Eve, when she went against the plain command of God because it seemed good to her, what about us? What chances do I have to trust my desires in my fallen state with all of my, my propensities and, and sinful nature? What, what chances do I have to trust my desires and be okay? I am naturally drawn to go against God's will. Yeah, there's some things about God's will that I like, but I'm naturally drawn to go against some things about God's will, some significant things, because his will does not cater to my selfish desires, nor yours. When, when God expressed when God expresses his truth to us, he's not thinking, oh, is this going to offend them? How's this going to go over? Are they going to like this? No, he tells us these things because this brings us life. And he knows that this, I mean, what brings us life, God's will, it does not appeal to our sinful desires all the time. The Bible tells us to forgive people who don't deserve to be forgiven. That doesn't appeal to me. The Bible tells us to love an enemy. That doesn't appeal to me. And the Bible also tells us to deny ourselves. And who wants to do that? Who's, who's standing in line to deny themselves more? This is what the Bible tells us. Naturally, our selfish desires they lead us to a very dangerous place. And if we follow them, 
We are prone to desiring experiences that are going to destroy us. We're at risk of that. Thankfully, I'm so thankful that God has a way to set us free from the desires that deceive us, that mislead us, that lead us to think, oh, this is really good, when in actuality, that is going to destroy us. God has a way to set us free from following our selfish desires. And he tells us right here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, God's love compels us to no longer live for ourselves. That means we're no longer living for, for our desires, our selfish desires. We're no longer saying, is this a good decision or a bad decision? Let me consult my desires and see what I should do. We no longer have to do that. We can now live in a different way. We can think in a different way because the love of Christ compels us to live for him. It sets us free from living for ourselves the dictates of our carnal, selfish, destructive desires. We can be free from that. So what does it mean to live for him, as 2 Corinthians 5.15 talks about? What does it mean to live for Christ, especially, as we're, we're talking about here in this sermon series, in regard to sexuality? What does that look like? If the Bible were silent on the topic of sexuality— we would need to look for answers somewhere else, of course. We would need to, to, to really, you know, we would be in a, in a difficult place. But fortunately, the Bible is not silent on the topic of sex. The Bible actually has a lot to say about sexuality. As Dr. Knight talked about four weeks ago uh, in his sermon, God Invented Sex. Am I, am I getting that sermon title right? God Invented Sex. He, he talks about some of these things. If you'd like, you can go back and listen to it. It's in our archives. You can go to our website, click on the media tab, and, and it's all right there. You'll be able to see it either in video or you can find it in audio form. Um, but the Bible has a lot to say about sexuality, and, and consistently, the message of the Bible is God created sex for marriage between a man and a woman. That is the consistent message from Genesis to Revelation, that, that sex is intended to be experienced between a man and a woman. And a woman. Now, I'd like to just put a few, a few Bible verses up there, and we don't really have time to go into uh, these, uh, these teachings, but I do think it's important to at least reference them, and you can write them down. These verses right here are the positive, this is what sex is for. This is God's plan for sex. We see it in Genesis 2.24. Dr. Knight touched on this, how there's this there's this statement from God that this is what it is for for the human race. It says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And very interesting, the context of that, uh, verse 18, Adam did not find a, a suitable helper. And so it says, God made a helpmeet for her or a helper for her. That's not a demeaning term, even though some might look at it today as that, as that. But what it actually means is someone like him that is different. The, the, the meaning behind that word points to a person who is different, sexually different. So the whole context, when, when it says a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, it's not just talking about two human beings come to, coming together. It's talking about two sexually different human beings. That is the context that is there. Jesus comes along later, and he affirms this same teaching that sex is meant to be experienced exclusively in marriage between a man and a woman in Mark 10, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. Very interesting, by the way, when Jesus, he actually quotes Genesis 2.24 when he's asked about uh, divorce, and, and he says, hey, 
Moses allowed you to divorce because of the hardness of your hearts, but this is not God's plan. God's plan is for a man to leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no one separate. But before he says that entire statement, and yes, this is in the context of divorce. This is not talking about gender uh, identity. It's not talking about um, same-sex attraction or anything like that. But what he says in verse 6 is he references the sexual differences between men and women. He says, God made them male and female, so a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He's talking about divorce. Why would Jesus make a point to say God made them male and female? He doesn't even quote the whole verse from Genesis saying that they were made in the image of God, but he calls attention to the sexual differences in marriage. And he talks about this is what it's designed for. It's for a man, it's for a woman to come together in marriage. That's, that's the, the exclusive plan of God for experiencing sexuality. Now, also in the Bible, there are some really strong prohibitions as to what this does not mean. Basically, the the easy definition is everything outside of marriage between a man and a woman is excluded. We find in Leviticus 18 a long list of sexual prohibitions that God speaks out against. He talks about, and I'm going to try to be gracious and, and, and talk because the Bible is really open about these things, but I, I want to be sensitive to everyone's, uh, everyone who's listening. Um, but it talks about incest and all kinds of different forms of that. It talks about um, adultery. You should not commit adultery. Do not look for sex outside of marriage. And it talks also about same-sex marriage being prohibited. And what's very significant, I think, about this in Luke 18 is that Hebrew scholars look at the wording of all of these prohibitions that are there, including the one that deals with same-sex marriage. All of these prohibitions are spoken of outside of a localized context. In other words, it's not talking about the relationship of a a master and a slave, okay? It's not talking about a non-consensual relationship. It's saying this is the way it is, period. No adultery, period. Same-sex relationships, period, are prohibited. You find this this same uh, teaching in the writings of Paul in Romans 1, uh, verses 26 and 27. This focuses on that. It says God's wrath is expressed towards this. Men sleeping with men, women sleeping with men, uh, women sleeping with women. It it prohibits... uh, all kinds of sexual perversion, including same-sex relationships. And um, a, a, a theologian who describes himself as uh, open to the idea of same-sex monogamous consensual relationships, even his name is E.P. Saunders, well-known, well-respected theologian, looking at Romans and, and the writings of Paul on this topic, he says, even though he's open to the idea of same-sex uh, monogamous relationship. He says that in the writings of Paul, there is no room for any kind of same-sex relationship, whether that is non-consensual or whether that is a consensual monogamous relationship. Paul does not allow for it. He's just honestly saying, this is what Paul is talking about. So I put these up there for you to read for yourself and to wrestle with uh, for yourself to come to your own conclusions. But these are some of the outstanding verses that teach us what God, his plan is for. And I don't bring this up to, to bash anyone who has desires that are contrary to this plan. That's, that's not the point. What I'm saying is, this is God, what he says to us, and as our creator, this is what he puts out there for us. 
for our blessing. In the context of marriage, sex is a blessing. It's a wonderful thing. It deepens the bonds, the relational bonds between husbands and wives. It's it's wonderful. And it produces some great kids and families come out of it. But as wonderful as God's plan is for sex, I realize that many find it difficult to accept, especially in our hyper-sexualized world that we live in. The, the culture that we live in leads people to think that unless they're having the sex that they desire, whenever they desire it, that they cannot live a fulfilled life, that you're going to be somehow restricted and, 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 and limited, and, and, and you're just going to miss out. Yes, God created sex, and he created us as sexual beings, but the reality is a person can live life to the fullest and still not have sex. That's possible. If you wonder how this could be possible, I invite you to consider Jesus. He was celibate. And he lived life to the fullest. He is our example of a human being living life to the fullest. And we don't find Jesus frustrated or, or we don't find him uh, all just tangled up and upset. He was celibate, and yet he was so loved by his Father that love flowed out of him like, like a river to everyone that he came in contact with. He was able to love everyone, which is an amazing thing. He valued marginalized people. He showed women unusual respect during this era when women were not highly respected. Jesus gave value to people. He was, he was respectful to people. Jesus stood up for the oppressed, and he showed special care for those individuals that the church and the church leaders marked and, and identified as the worst of sinners. Very interesting how Jesus treated those people that the church regarded as the worst of sinners. I'm just going to throw out a few examples here for you, for your consideration. When a Roman centurion, okay, the Jews hated the Romans. They, they, they despised them they, they, in so many different ways. I mean, they were oppressed by the Romans. They felt like they should be free from Roman rule. But they also despised the way that the Romans lived and the way that the Romans went about things. And this centurion, he was a poster boy, so to speak, for what Rome stood for. This guy, was, his life was no doubt full of sin. And this Roman centurion, when he came up to Jesus and he asked Jesus to heal his servant who was sick, Notice that Jesus did not rebuke him for his sins first. He didn't say, all right, let's talk about some stuff. You need to get rid of this. You need to change that. And once you get cleaned out, cleaned all up, then we'll talk. We don't find Jesus doing that. Jesus simply honored the man's faith and granted his request. Incredibly loving treatment of this Roman centurion. On another occasion, when when the Jews brought Jesus, a woman who was guilty of adultery, they knew because they caught her in the act. But instead of condemning this woman, Jesus showed her unusual tenderness and love. Now, was this because Jesus approved of adultery? Because he didn't think adultery was a big deal? Not at all. Jesus loved the law. In fact, he said, I came to fulfill the law. And when he said that, he's talking about the five books of Moses. I came to fulfill this. He loved the law. He loved his Father in heaven who gave the law. But 
when Jesus showed this woman love and, and unusual tenderness, something happened in her life. She was changed. She was compelled to leave her life of sin. Loving others the way Christ loved others is not compromise. It's not taking the Bible and saying, well, we're just going to overlook some of the... No, no, no. It's not compromise on moral truth. It's not compromising in any way in what God has to say to us about how we are called to live the words of life. It doesn't compromise that. What it does is it empowers people. When we show them love, it empowers them to change. Tax collectors in Jesus' day, these people were, were looked upon as like the worst of sinners. And yet, how did Jesus treat tax collectors? Did he rebuke them for being liars and, and cheaters, for being oppressors of God's people? All these things were true, but we don't find Jesus saying these things to tax collectors. One day, when Jesus saw a certain tax collector by the name of Matthew, he is working his trade. We, we could, I think, I would argue that, that he was being dishonest and, and he was gaining from other people and, and he was taking advantage of people. Jesus walks up to this horrible sinner and this is what he says to him. Follow me. He calls him to be his disciple. This terrible, this blew people away. The way Jesus treated horrible sinners. Jesus' main concern was not the particular sin in the person's life. Jesus' main concern was that these people that he interacted with, that others considered to be terrible sinners, his main concern was that they experience his love. That they experience Jesus, that they know him for who he is, because he knew that when they experienced the love of Christ, that it would change them to no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. When we experience the love of Christ, it compels us to live differently. Jesus' life demonstrates how to respond to the LGBT community, how he's calling us to treat people who are lesbian or gay or bisexual or transsexual or whatever it might be. He tells us to show them love. That, that's, the, that's the clear statement here in treating the worst of sinners. Show them love. Not because you agree with them. Not because you're trying to, to deny the, the, the plan of God that, that sex is designed to be experienced in a marriage between a man and a woman. Not, not because you're denying those things. He's show them love because this is what they need to know. So, so often we as Christians become so preoccupied by certain sins Sin, yeah, sin is terrible. But what changes people is not saying, you know, you shouldn't be a lesbian. You shouldn't be in practicing homosexuality. You shouldn't be doing it. That's, that's not how people change. The love of Christ changes us. That is the clear statement in Scripture. If you have a friend who is lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, I want to encourage you to be a genuine friend to that person. Seek to understand that person. Ask that person questions, not to question them, but to really put yourself in their experience. Understand, feel what they feel, see what they see, understand what they, show them empathy. Empathize with them, but don't just do that. Show them hospitality. 
There's a lot of persecution out there. It's rough out there. Show them the love of Christ. If a same-sex couple comes to our church, may they never sit alone. May they never leave without people going out of their way to say, we're glad you're here. To take a genuine interest in them, not because you approve of their life, but because you approve of the fact that they are children of God, made in the image of God. May they, if it's possible, may they receive an invitation to come home for lunch. May they be shown hospitality. If one of our children in our church family comes out as LGBT, let's show them love by valuing them as people created in the image of God. They don't need us to fix them. We cannot fix them if fixing needs to happen. We need to turn that over to Christ. They need to know Jesus. That is what is needed. Jesus has the power to change our desires. Rosaria Butterfield, she is now in a marriage to a a pastor, a man. She has children. God changed her desires. God is able to do that. But sometimes God does not do that. And anecdotally, I would say that many times he does not do that. Oftentimes, people who are same-sex attracted or people who um, are addicted to lust or, or whatever it might be, whatever sexual perversion it might be, and, and please don't, I'm not trying to, to say they're all the same, okay? They're, they're different. But God does not always change these desires. Sometimes we live with these desires throughout our life. And if that is the case, if you are same-sex attracted, you accept Christ, and that does not go away, Know that God is going to give you the grace that you need to live for him and to live fully for him. We put it in his hands. He is the Savior. I mean, he is able to raise the dead. He's able to change our desires. But if he chooses not to, he has a greater plan in mind. He's going to show himself as a great Savior in your life. And in the process, you're going to learn about him more than you ever could have done on your own without that struggle. Regardless of your sexual orientation, as long as we are on this planet, we are going to be tempted with desires that go against the will of God. It's just, it's just the reality. But thankfully, God knows how to set each one of us free. He wants to do that for you. And he wants for you to be an agent of freedom in the lives of other people. How does that happen? We can live loving lives. We can live full and complete lives by receiving Jesus, by receiving his love, by sharing Jesus with other people. And when we are compelled by the love of Christ, that is when we will find a love that lasts forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for your plan for us. Thank you, God, for the way you have treated each one of us, that you haven't come with telling us every sin that's in our life, you came loving us. And with your love, you transform us. You raise us up to experience your character. Thank you, God, that you came to save us from our sins. Thank you that you're able to change us. And I want to pray especially for those in our LGBT community, our brothers and sisters who are same-sex attracted, 
our brothers and sisters who, who struggle with desires that are apart from your plan, I pray, God, that we would learn to show them empathy and grace in a, way that, in a greater way. Lord, may we, may we treat them as Jesus would treat them. I pray, God, that we would be the people that you're calling us to be and that we would receive your love that compels us to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.